Welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, an occasional podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Norwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. Mr. Sanderson. Yeah? What? Next time we record, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Sanderson will be a married man. Oh, boy. (laughs) 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 You realise I was trying to take my mind off the fact I've only got, like, nine days of freedom left. Thank you you for ramming it home. (laughs) Appropriately enough, we've just had a conversation before recording about how to fake enthusiasm. (laughs) Matt Matt apparently didn't learn anything from it. (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yay, happy, happy, happy. (laughs) That's it. That's the way, that's the way. I love you really, Tiff, honest. Anything else? Anything you want to confess? You're suddenly feeling like I'm in a confession <laughs> box here. What the hell? I don't know. <laughs> I thought we came to do a show, not not a grilling. <laughs> All right, we'll let you off. So, uh, what's tonight's th- uh, episode all about, Scott? Apparently, making Matt feel uncomfortable. Well, that's <laughs> what they're all about. <laughs> Apart from that, it's about player techniques. Uh, a few episodes ago, episode forty-two, I think. Yeah, like, like, let's say it was at 42. I mean, you know, even if it wasn't 42, it is officially now. Well, well, yeah. It was. We, it was episode we, 42. I, I have access to the website. I can change the episode numbers. But but in that episode, we discussed techniques that we'd seen other GMs use in games and thought, oh, that's really good. Let's steal it. So this time we're going to do the flip side of that and talk about things that we've seen players do at the game table where we thought, that's really good. Let's steal it. Yeah, things players have done that have made the game come alive, made the game better, made the situation better for everyone. Um, Whatever it was that was good, uh, let's talk about it. My first example revolves around uh, a friend of mine, James Hamilton, who contacted me between game sessions and suggested a alternative history and destiny for his player character. This was in a a fantasy role-playing game, a game of Ars Magica, uh, kind of like if you've never, if you're not familiar with it, a bit like Dungeons and Dragons, I'd set up a, a a setting for the game, and there was a selection of countries. The characters have been playing. The players have been playing this game for maybe a year or two at this stage, so we we're well into the, the the story cycle. And James's character was a kind of a nobleman, but we hadn't really expressed any specific background for him, so he was a kind of friend of the wizard's covenant and was above just a regular fighter but he wasn't a wizard so he was kind of in that middle tier for the Ars Magica world. James contacted me and said how about my character is the prince of this uh, one of the countries called Zahn. It totally fitted and he, he came up with a whole background for it and it, it, it completely fitted his character and we were able to go forward with that and he was able to through successive sessions he was able to rally the people behind him and we kind of role played through that story and it, it brought a whole new thread to the story that hadn't occurred to me but it was you know totally coming from him so it was as simple as that a player coming up with a really cool idea 
and then putting it forward to the GM and saying, how about this for my character? Hmm. And, yeah, I think what's important about that is the fact that it, it wasn't part of the initial setup of the game, but it was something that happened when, when the game was actually in progress, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, we've been playing for maybe... I mean, we only met once a month, um, so we'd maybe played, I don't know, a dozen, 20 games. So that character was quite well established by that time, so it was kind of a retrofitting to his character, but... yeah. I mean, you know, I've certainly seen plenty of occasions when players have come up with things you know, to add to games in progress, sometimes even at the gaming table. But I guess you know, what, what's impressive about that for me is the fact that it fundamentally redefined what the character was without changing, really, who the character was, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Uh, it didn't derail the game or disrupt it, but just made it cooler. It did. It was kind of, from a GM's point of view, it was almost the kind of thing that I could have had up my sleeve and said to him, you know what, your character all along, you don't know this, but he's been the prince, you know, the heir to this kingdom. But it was, and that would have been a surprise to the character, which is the way it's usually played. But he kind of turned that around on me and gave me a surprise about the game. Which... Yeah, and, and that sort of reflects the way that a lot of the fiction that we model these games on works, that you had these these revelations that come out about the character. And there's no reason why you as a player need to know what these revelations are ahead of time, if this is a long-term campaign, or even you know, even if it's something relatively short, about halfway through, you, know, you could just think of something, oh, hang on, I can turn this around 180 degrees, it won't contradict anything, and it'll be really cool. If we kind of extrapolate that to a general technique, I guess, you know, really thinking about your character, thinking about his background and uh, is, is the, the, the destiny of the character and how you can come up with some really crazy cool ideas to and put them to the, the GM and, you know, inject them into the game. But moreover, not thinking of your character as this static thing. I mean, obviously characters change during play, but not thinking of the character's backstory as a static thing. Just because you've, you've sat down and written... You know, it's two pages of backstory. It doesn't mean that's all, you know, all your character's history. And if it hasn't come into the game, then it's not really, you know, it's pretty malleable anyway. Yeah. It's quite like um, certain game systems like Brave New World, where your way that you get more skills on um, on your sheet as you progress through play is that you do flashback scenes to say, well, this bit happened in my background that I really need a skill now, so this happened a while back, and then just suddenly weaving that into your backstory. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, 316 does that really well as well. So this is a general thing, uh, but I'll point to one specific example of it. Uh, a while back I ran an Unknown Armies one-shot, uh, and one of the players in it, uh, James Mullen, uh, had a really good idea at some point. I was floundering as a GM at a really key scene towards the end, where things were going very badly for his character. And he, he came up with you know, a nice way, you know, a nice excuse for his character to die, you know, to suffer horribly for all her plans to fail and stuff like that, that was absolutely perfect for the fiction of the game, fitted into what everyone else was doing, and made for one of the most memorable endings to one shot I've ever played. And... <sighs> I mean, there were a few things that I took away from that. One is obviously not being afraid of losing. Uh, yeah, I, I, you know, you can probably hear the inverted commas around that. But not being afraid of a bad outcome for your character, not being afraid of things going wrong, and being willing to, you know, accept... Well, not just accept, but take control uh, and embellish and be creative with uh, where your character's story is going. Yeah, you know, don't be afraid to hurt your character. Don't be afraid to let bad things happen to them. And look at them, you know, as as a 
look at their stories as kind of an arc, the way you'd look at the arc of a character in you know, a TV series or a series of novels or something like that. So in a nutshell, better to burn out than fade away. Exactly, yes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, my, char- my favourite character in Lord of the Rings is Boromir. Um, and he dies, you know, sorry, spoilers. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's quite he, dies, thing you should he dies fairly early on. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, he has, a, he has a great ending. So he's, you know, that, that makes... That, reflects really well on his uh, on his role. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point as well. I mean, you don't really have to wait to the end of the game for this. I mean, if you look at your characters as stories to be told, you know, perhaps within the context of the greater story of the campaign or something like that, sometimes, you know, a character story is told before the overall campaign's done. And, you know, going out on a high note there, retiring that character, you know, it maybe, you know, it doesn't have to be death or something catastrophic, but, you know, if their story's done, it's done. There's a GM that I used to know over in the States. He used to be quite active, I'm not sure if he still is or not, on what was the Camarilla Society at the time, so lots of live-action World of Darkness games. Uh, Lovely fellow by the name of Dave Bounds. And he used to stand up at the beginning of every uh, major convention for the last year or so of when they were running their last Chronicle and said, "I I want you to play to lose. Mm. I want you to put yourself in situations where bad shit happens to you. I want you to put yourself in a situation where you don't get what you want and let the story come out of that and see what happens. Yeah, well, that's good. Good yeah. advice. Yeah. yeah. Shame yeah. a few people brought into it, but that's what, that's, that was the methodology that he always explained. That should be written on the top of every Call of Cthulhu character sheet, really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And my anecdote picks up, again, going back to um, the world of live action gaming and specifically going back to the world of darkness for um, Vampire the Requiem. Uh, for my sins, um, for several years, I think it must have been about four or five years, I ran a live-action chronicle in the Milton Keynes area. And we had one player in particular, uh, Jeff Hardy, who, as you've mentioned about the wedding, he'll be coming along to the stag do next weekend. Oh, nice. Ah, so you can you can grill and poke him there and give him say that you got his few minutes of fame on our podcast. Just one phrase. Drop your jaw. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, will, we will have photos, dear yeah. listener. <laughs> Apparently Matt is going to eat a burger as big as his head. I think it might be slightly bigger. I think it's somewhere... You, you, do, you do have a large head, Matt. Oh, there is true, yeah. <laughs> fine, <laughs> fine trying to get hats on this. And if, if I can talk to the restaurant with two and a half million Scoville-scale sauce mm-hmm. poured all over it. Mm. Yeah, now that, that I'll go for. Say, the hot burger. <laughs> Just how hot is that? <laughs> I, I, I think the technical term is really fucking hard. <laughs> we we will find out. <laughs> it can't it can't beat St Elmo's horseradish anyway. Nothing beats that. <laughs> Sorry, so, I kind of derailed your yeah, yeah. your anecdote, but in, but in a good way. Yeah. Well, um, Jeff Jeff in that in actually that's a good uh, way to lead into because Jeff <laughs> completely fucking derailed the whole thing that I had planned. The one of the things that I do when I run a game like that is I set up quite a in depth population for an area. Um, for the Mortal Network, for say the influence structure and such of the city, we ended up between myself and Chris Grice, who originally founded the game, we had 356 different NPCs that could be used to bounce around depending on what anyone did. I mean, the game lasted nine years. so I, was... I, I don't think I've created 356 NPCs in the course of 30 years of GM. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, we had a lot. Um, the vast majority had the um, had backgrounds, agendas and such. Others were they're just names and placeholders to fill certain roles, but there there were hundreds of them. And we always used to joke that it was almost one for every day of the week, uh, one for every day of the year. <laughs> that one one of these NPCs was a hitman. Um, that his he had been hired by a um, by an NPC vampire 
to cause havoc and start taking out people's influences, basically as a way to scratch at them and as a way to look, you've got a problem here, deal with it, and give them a little breadcrumb trail to follow, not a mini-investigation. Except the, the guy had got this hitman in so under his thumb that if it came to push came to shove, the guy would just commit suicide rather than be um, rather than end up in enemy hands, which is exactly what happened. Jeff cornered him, the guy turned um, turned his gun round on him, basically smiled at the guy and then blew his own brains out. At which point I'm thinking, right, that's the end of that, he's now got to go to the guy's house, he's got to start going through his things, he's got to start following a paper trail. Now, being the vampire, he basically bends over the guy and embraces him. Um, promptly wakes him up, um, and then I'm thinking, shit, he's going to get all the info. So I, he managed yeah. to bring him back from being shot. Well, you you can embrace you can, do that? you can embrace someone within a very short period after after they die. Oh, okay. But in that sweet spot, in that golden moment, he reached down and went, "No, you're getting back up." So, cool. so did the guy still have a head at this stage? It doesn't matter. Um, the, um, a vampire like that can just burn, burn blood and regenerate the um, regenerate ah. the wound. Oh, blimey! Okay, cool. So consequently, you have this somewhat crazy guy thinking that, "Hang on a minute, I should be dead. What the hell's happening here?" And we've gone a little bit gaga for mm. about a month or so, in which case he then had to roleplay, basically trying to calm this guy down, trying to get a little bit of sanity back, or in his case, because he was playing a um, a clan that had Dominate, no, just uh, actually just <laughs> rewrite, re- re- rewriting his brain until the point where he was sane again. So this was this this Hitman was now completely his pawn? Yes. Right. That the, the, the lesson I got from that was, well, threefold. One, don't expect players to do what you think they're going to do. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's a GM. They should always have that in the <laughs> forefront of their mind. But one that they also took the least cost-effective route to get to the decent um, to get to the decent answer they wanted, because doing that in Vampire costs you um, at least in Requiem costs you a permanent willpower point. Um, he hadn't got permission to embrace. So he was losing permanent XP off his sheet that he would then have to spend time rebuilding the willpower dot, then the XP he had to recuperate to um, to rebuy the dot, and so on. That was at least two or three months of solid work just dedicated to getting that one dot back on his sheet. And then plus having to go to the prince with his tail between his legs and saying, sorry, I just broke one of your laws by saying I just embraced without your permission. Oops. <laughs> but he got what he wanted out of it. So it just showed yeah. you, that, yeah, you can put yourself in a detrimental position and seriously, cost-effective-wise. So was he kind of putting his neck on the line to some degree by doing that with his like his, his elder vampires? Oh, yeah, he could, he could have been executed if people had found out that's what he'd done. But, I mean, the cool thing about that is, you know, out of character, that's the kind of story that people tell for years afterwards. Like now. I mean, this, yeah. this happened easily oh, two, three, easily four or five years ago. So coming up with some really unexpected, cool stuff and putting your character in danger to do it, really. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Do, doing the optimal thing isn't always doing the most interesting thing. Yeah, doing the suboptimal route definitely had some interesting consequences. <laughs> yeah, but but like I say, you know, from an out-of-character perspective, that's the kind of thing that... Yeah, both as you know, as another player, you know, you 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 have to respect that. Uh, you're you're going to be entertained by stories of it. If you're a player who pulls off something like that, I the, I, I imagine the sense of satisfaction you get from it is greater than any, you know any number of XP you'd get. Oh yeah, he just loved the look on my face, going you you twat. What you <laughs> you've just ruined my line, my nicely crafted line of investigation. You've got exactly everything you need on a platter. My next one took place at IndieCon a few years ago. Um, I turned up, so it was a game in which, a, a game system I'd never played before, and we sat down to do character generation with a bunch of people that I didn't really know, and 
I was a little unsure as to, to what the game was about and how to play it and so on. Uh, it was the first game of Apocalypse World that I'd ever played. The, the other people seemed to know the system and know what they were about and were, were all kind of getting into character generation. And I was, I felt rather adrift really. And I'd kind of come up with a character concept and we were throwing around ideas. What broke the ice for me was Indy Pete looked across the table and said the words, who is your character fucking? And this just sort of brought about a, a reaction in me and I, I, didn't, I didn't really know what to say, but immediately it, he'd, he'd described his character already. So my reaction was, well, I guess your character. <laughs> And it just kind of sparked off a, a dynamic among the group and got things going, really. It broke the ice and it kind of drove um, character generation forward. Often it's the kind of GM's job to kind of push people in character generation. But I think as another player in the game, you can ask people leading questions, loaded questions, whatever you want. Or well, make suggestions even. Yeah, yeah make those, suggestions, yeah. throw things out. But I think asking questions, because inherent in that game is asking questions. Yeah. So don't just leave it up to, I mean, transfer this to any game, but don't just leave it up to the, to the GM to sort of do that job. You know, step forward and ask the other players or throw things out about how do you know my character or, you know, Maybe loaded questions like, what did your character do to piss off my character? Or how do we know each other? Or Yeah, I've certainly played in a few games and GM'd a few games where players have done that. And it's certainly made for a much stronger dynamic between the group. And not only that, but I guess if you're the GM and you're asking lots of questions like that, what you're trying to do is build you know, some degree of cohesion and so on. Generally, I mean, it depends on the game, obviously. Yeah, But I, as players, then I think you're, you're probably maybe slightly more willing to ask those questions, like you say, about what's your character done to piss mine off and so on. I think so. As a GM, you don't necessarily want to create uninvited antagonism between the players. But if yeah. they're doing that themselves and giving each other license to do that, then that seems... You know, well, perhaps easier for them to, to accept and uh, play with. Yeah, but I mean, not just that, but it, you know, if, if it's the GM asking it, it feels like it's almost something you've got to do because the GM is, you know, in, in most games, you know, like it or not, an authority figure. Hmm. Uh, and during character generation, you know, they tend to lay down the rules. And if a GM asks you something like this, but then, you know, you, you feel honor bound to do something, even if you're perhaps not comfortable with it. But if it's another player... Uh, then you, you find your own comfort level, I think, much more spontaneously. And if I were the GM in that game, I'd be like, yeah, great, get oh, on with it, guys. Be. Bloody <laughs> do the job. Don't wait for me to ask you everything. Well, it oh. takes, takes work away from you, doesn't it? So. Yeah. Well, it's, it's not just that, but yeah, it's, it's, it's really good you know, seeing that spontaneous dynamic forming and seeing people creating their own bonds like that. Yeah, as a GM, I love it when that happens. This sort of touches on some of the things that Paul was saying earlier, but it's much more about what happens in the game itself. What I you know, particularly like as a GM, uh, and you know, obviously this is going to be down to individual GMs, is players spontaneously coming up with stuff about the game world and, and relationships and stuff like that at the game table. And, I mean, it depends on the player, it depends on uh, the game and, you know, how attuned the player is to the fiction that's going on in the game. But, you know, it's suddenly, you know, it's, it's like you were saying before about, you know, the, the rewriting the background and so on. But it's, uh, you know, say, so, you know, you encounter, you know, a gang leader or something like that in a game and, you know, sort of one of the players pipes up and says, well, how about if he's actually my brother? 
And, you know, it's, it's a dynamic you haven't considered. And then all of a sudden, yeah, you look at it and you think, oh, yeah, actually, that makes things really interesting. Yeah, go on. I mean, that, that happens an awful lot in games like Apocalypse World and Monster Hearts and so on, because it's, it's sort of built into that. But I've seen players try doing that in, um, in games of Call of Cthulhu, and I, know, I think it works to varying degrees there. Uh, where, where you've got an investigative game, it's a very fine line to, to balance. I mean, you know. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's always the case that in a game like Call of Cthulhu, the GM's going to retain a veto on that. So yeah. if it's, it's kind of arch baddie in disguise and you say, oh, that's my brother, well, yeah, maybe it's his brother if he can kind of contrive that, but he might just say, well, no, actually... No, let's not go with that. Yeah. And, and when you put it forward, you've got to put it forward as a, as a suggestion, I guess. Yeah, I mean, so, certainly, yeah, I, I've, I've had players who've put forward stuff like that in games of Call of Cthulhu as sort of a stated fact. And it's, so, yeah, as a GM, I have to sort of say, well, actually, yeah, I, I think that's a really cool idea, but, you know, it's not going to work in this particular case. Yeah, and I'll explain to you why later. Uh, but, yeah, we'll, we'll try to work with some variant of it. The most concrete examples of this I've seen at the table have come in games, admittedly, which actually rely an awful lot on, on player input. I think I may have told this story before. The game which taught me the most about accepting player input was Inspectors, which I ran you know, for the first time, oh gosh, must be about getting on for ten years ago, at uh, the Milton Keynes Role Playing Club. And I'd only ever run very traditional games with a very fixed GM player dynamic there. And th there still is that GM player dynamic in Inspectors, but what's interesting about it is that, you know, when you roll dice uh, in a conflict to perhaps do a bit of research on something, you as a player get to dictate what the bit of information is if you succeed. And <laughs> I just remember that there was this, the, the first game I ever ran, in the first five minutes, I, I, I'd, I'd done the, the, the prescribed setup for the game, which is very, very light, uh, by necessity, because as a GM, you don't know where it's going to go. And I, I'd sort of come up with, with some idea of a, um, a haunting on board the Royal Train, uh, because it was set in Milton Keynes, and the Wolverton Railway Works is where the Royal Train's uh, maintained. Neil Smith was one of the players. He did a bit of research on the guy who'd hired them, and I'd made... Uh, oh, no, I, I don't think I'd actually said anything about who he was, but, uh, yeah, <laughs> he rolled some dice, got a six on it, which meant that he got to dictate everything about it. He said, uh, yeah, well, we did some research and we found out that this guy was actually a member of the Queen's Own Horse. What we didn't realise at the time was that he was actually a horse. And things got very weird from that point onwards. <laughs> The only two words I can think of when uh, you mentioned inspectors are Muppet Hell. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought chickens. Yeah. They seem to come up. Whatever you roll, it seems to be something to do with chickens. But well, we, we, maybe we that had, was just us. We, we had a whole series of string of, of scenarios that started off with Haunted KFC, didn't we? And, yeah, because uh, when I then came to read the rule book, apparently it was kind of a, based around the kind of Ghostbusters um, franchise. Yeah. Yeah, that was a surprise to me, but... I, I explained that at the start of the game. Did I, you? Can't, I can't help it if you don't listen, Paul. Oh. It's a different franchise. It's just KFC instead of Ghostbusters. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, so what do we take away from this, Scott? Uh, what do we take away? That um, 
as a player, it's it's good to kind of come up with these spontaneous bits of information. Obviously, you know, you have to tailor it to the style of game you're playing. You know, and and if it is a game where the GM has got a plot or a background or something decided ahead of time, obviously there's some negotiation involved. But I think, you know, both as a GM and as a fellow player, I mean, I, I, I really like it when these spontaneous things come out at the table and, and move things in unexpected directions. My next one comes from Andy Nicholson, who we both worked with on, all three of us worked with on Europe Ablaze. That um, he was one of the playtesters in a very early um, playtest version of uh, The Love of Money that I did for the ESA Terrorists. Um, little bit of spoiler ahead that there's one of the monsters in the scenario basically lives in a mirror. and the, I, I think you can guess that from the cover of the book, though. You might be able to get from that, yeah. If you, <laughs> if you haven't, you probably will notice it now. That, oh, yeah, the cause that isn't the same reflection, but anyway. No, no self-respecting GM is going to let the players see the cover of the book, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> That's, that, yeah, we, that, or we, even we, the name of the scenario in most cases. We, 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 should, we should have included this as one of the GM tips in episode 42. GMs, poke your player's eyes out with a sharp pencil. In some cases, yeah, don't read the back cover of the book and certainly don't look at the front cover. <laughs> Andy had got to a point in the scenario where he had, I think he had called or at least got the attention of this, this entity in the mirror. Um, he'd worked out what the, the Easter terrorist group were doing. And in the game, each character is, is a pre-gen, so you've got quite a detailed background. Unsurprisingly, given pre-gens from me. Given you wrote it. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, wait, wait, when you say background, do you mean dossier? Yeah, the, the original version was about three pages long. But anyway, the, um, he had quite a detailed background. And he'd latched on to the core of it being that this character was um, pretty much overwhelmed by grief for the fact they'd lost their brother. That was the um, kind of the core driving force for them was to find out what um, what their brother done, how had he died, who done it, get revenge for it, and so forth. But then Andy had twigged there might be a way to get his brother back. So he called up the entity and essentially went, hey, I'm willing to buy into this, I will become an ESA terrorist, I want my brother, basically I want I've got an agenda here. How can I help you get to do what you want to uh, want to do? Mm-hmm. But didn't state I want to go. I want to get my brother back. But just said I'm willing to help you get you to do. I'm willing to help you do what you want to do. At which point, um, I'm thinking, well, that's perfect because I didn't know that that was his rationale of going down it. I thought it was just he was trying to throw a spanner in the works and seeing what would happen if a if an if a PC turns sides midway through the game. But then the the route of questioning, as it turned out showed that the the entity knew that everything that the esoteric group was doing was basically doomed to failure, revealed it to Andy, at which point he went, oh shit, okay, well I've got no point in joining them, I'll back out, <laughs> and effectively played as a double agent, went back to the rest of the group and said, guys, I've got a bit of a confession to make, but I've got some really juicy info as a result. <laughs> oh wow, okay. And yeah, it was, the, the lesson I got from that being that, yeah, the he was perfectly willing to change sides midway through, uh, midway through the adventure. He was willing to put his neck on the line quite quite dramatically, more so than the previous example, which I say was more, say how much you're willing to sacrifice to get um, to get what you want, but willing to literally go. Right, my character could die right here, right now, and can completely <coughs> alter where this game goes. But that, I mean, prior to that, it was kind of a um, largely a kind of party game. Oh, um, I never write a cohesive group. When I do, pe- um, but, when I mean, I do it's pre- kind of, <laughs> but the expectation from the 
from the players generally would be that they're playing a party-based game oh, rather yeah, yes. than very individualistic. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, they were forced together and there wasn't that much they could do about so it. So most people would have played that along party lines, yes. you're saying, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, and and also with investigative games as well. I think people tend to you know, bind together to solve the mystery just by reflex because it's what they've been conditioned to do by put, years. And often put that games. investigation mm-hmm. above any personal character yeah. goals. I mean, oh, I, he, actually, he reversed that and grabbed it by the neck. You know, yeah. I, think, I think that's really good because, I mean, this is something I've noticed in a lot of Call of Cthulhu games I've run at conventions. Um, because I'm used to, you know, I've run a lot of games like Hot War and Cold City uh, conventions where characters have got their own agendas. And I'm used to, you know, setting up the the problem that the party faces, the investigation or whatever you want to call it in a game like that, and expecting it to be a pretext and completely ignored as players actually, you know, sort of start down that road and then suddenly look at their own agendas and charge off and and do all that. Call of Cthulhu players tend to, in my experience, do the reverse. If you you know, if you're at a convention and you give someone a pre gen and they've got, you know, a, a fairly strong personal goal on there or, you know, some kind of personal driver Nine times out of ten, that will become completely subsumed in pursuit of the investigation. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think the memorable ones, yeah, don't do that. They, yeah. they, they kind of. Well, they, I guess they pursue the goal, but they kind of contrive to do it in a way that fits their character, or they pursue their own character's goals. It's not to say they totally disconnect from the scenario, though. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a question of finding that. As, that as with Anders' one, yeah. I mean, he 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 went away from the party, like you were just saying, Matt. But it was it was totally within the scenario. He oh, very just, much so. Didn't just yeah. run off down the street and go and you know bugger off. Mm. And we have seen that happen in games, so haven't we, Scott? Oh, for yes. sure. <laughs> oh yes. Yeah, but I, I mean, it's not just the proactive thing, but it's that that whole thing about not being afraid to follow personal goals and personal agendas within the context of a larger mission and a larger investigation. And yeah, be, being true to yeah, being true to who your character is without being a dick about it. Almost like mm-hmm. playing a role. Yeah, I know. It's what a, could you that's call a, that? That's a revolutionary concept. You've got role playing. <laughs> yeah. My third and final one is a fairly brief thing. It was in a game run by yourself, Scott. Oh, that can't be good. Um, we played a game of My Life with Master. We played a campaign of it, in fact, mm. um, and. It's a shame you don't run it more often, Scott, because you were, it was ideally suited to you. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it does seem to fit my personality all playing, too well. Playing uh, it, within the game, all the player characters are uh, minions of a, a master, whatever form that might may take. Um, and the, the GM plays the master and gives the minions horrible things to do. It was very enjoyable. I really enjoyed the, that first session, even though my first command was to bring the master the nurse's legs, <laughs> if you recall, Scott. Oh, yes. I thought I could get around it by bringing the whole nurse with her legs, <laughs> but apparently that wasn't satisfactory. He got a bit angry about that. Um, but my point about player technique here, and this is something quite different to the other examples perhaps, is that at the end of the game, uh, Neil, who we've already, whose name we've already mentioned, said, guys, thanks very much, but this isn't for me. It wasn't the kind of tone of game that he enjoyed. He's not really into horror games. And, uh, you know, he was quite able to say at the end of the session without offending anybody, thanks very much, but, you know, I'm, I'm going to do something different next week. And, I well, have, and I've never spoken to him since. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, and I think we often see this um, in, in, in games at conventions or, or various games that 
particularly, I guess I'm picking conventions particularly because it's somewhere you can go along and you don't know the people and you maybe don't know the system or the game you're going into. And I think if, if it's clear to you, when it becomes clear to you that I'm not enjoying this and, you know, I can see that that's not going to change. I can see everybody else is enjoying it, maybe. Um, but this isn't for me. Then not to be afraid to say, you know, thanks very much, folks. But I'm going to bow out here and, and go and do something else. Yeah, I, I think that's interesting. I mean, personally, I've never actually walked out of a game for a couple of different reasons. One is, I think if the game generally, is, you know, if there are aspects of it I enjoy and it's salvageable, I generally feel like it's within my own abilities as a player to help shape it into something I'll enjoy more. I've generally found that to be successful. I can I can find things about it I enjoy, uh, push things in the directions I like, and, and, and I have fun doing it. And on the other hand, if the game is a completely irredeemable, soul-destroying clusterfuck, you can tell stories about it in the bar at conventions for years <laughs> afterwards. I have got one example going through my head, and I guess you know. I bet you know what it is right now. <laughs> I think we've all got examples of that. Yeah. Oh, at least one. Yeah. But it's not necessarily... My point is that it's not yeah. necessarily a what might be judged as a bad game. Uh, yeah. It's just a game that you know, you're not enjoying for whatever reason. No, I mean, that's fair enough. Yeah, my last example is a fairly different one as well. It's nothing to do with actually playing the game per se. At Continuum about, oh, probably about six years ago, uh, I was running one of my Hot War Cthulhu mashups and I had, you know, it's, it's almost an interesting counterpoint to what you've just said about you know, not being in a game you enjoy. I had this chap, uh, a teenager who'd signed up for the game and I, I think because he'd seen Cthulhu on the character sheet, he was expecting it to be more like Call of Cthulhu instead of this very kind of freeform, agenda-driven, slightly backstabby game. And I think, you know, between you know, what he saw in his character sheets and the fact that, you know, he's probably younger than the, you know, the next youngest person at the table by at least 20 years, uh, I think he probably felt that was quite intimidating. And uh, he sort of withdrew into himself and became very, very shy and very difficult to coax out into the game. Mm. Uh, every time, you know, I'd sort of go around to him and say, right, what do you do? He'd, he'd hit decision paralysis. Sure, yeah, I mean, we've all seen players like that, I'm sure. Yeah. Well, this is the most extreme example of it I've yeah. seen. But, right. But what kind of really heartened me was the way that the other three players at the table sort of um, stepped outside the game to sit there, not quite counsel him, but sort of, you know, encourage him, try to draw him out, try to make him make the whole game feel like a safe space to him and, you know, reassure him that his, his input was, was valuable and so on. And it would have been very easy in some games, you know, certainly with some groups of players, to completely steamroller a, a quiet player like that or just ignore them. But it was just watching this group of players come together and sort of think, right, okay, yeah, this guy's obviously feeling slightly uncomfortable here how can we as as fellow players make this a more comfortable game for him so concretely i mean what did they actually do what did the players do to bring him into the game more i mean they they, they stepped out of character they took you know they they spent time sort of saying yeah it's, it, well it, it's okay yeah whatever you come up with we can work with here and um you know perhaps coming up with a couple of suggestions or you know whatever you want and uh i and generally you know it was a kind of combination of tone of voice and body language and so on it was it was that breaking out of the character because in a very confrontational game 
you know, you might be playing, you know, quite an angry character or, you know, trying to browbeat another character or whatever. If the player is actually feeling a bit intimidated or uncomfortable by that, actually stepping outside that and saying, you know, actually, this is okay, sorry, or, or even asking if this is making you uncomfortable, you know, can we, you know, would you like to try something else? Yeah, actually, because I've, I've known some players that form to the game I didn't know, and partway through the game, I'm getting a little bit like, is this how they are, or are they just putting on this for the for the role a yeah. bit like you know when we see a, a, an actor in in a program we kind of you know it's almost like we think they are the person in the yes. in in the show but then you know obviously they're not they're just an actor oh yeah um, so um yeah i can see that 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 can be very effective and I, and also conversely i've seen a lot of players when you do have that one player who is you know turtling in their shell and they're not they're not saying anything all too easy for the other players just to kind of sit there with blinkers on and not look at that one player and yeah. kind of disconnect from him and, and ignore that person. And as much as GM can, you kind of put the spotlight on them occasionally, but it doesn't always bring them out. Being friendly as yeah. a player technique for you. Yes. Yeah, well, it's, it's not just that. I think it's fundamentally never forgetting, you know, this is probably more a question of convention games or games with people you don't know, but never forgetting that the other people at the table are people. And I don't think that's just convention games. Yeah. Yes, you're probably right. But, but yeah, if, if you're having trouble, you know, and this, this is a bit of a truism and you'll see this is a bit of advice on every RPG thread out there. But, you know, it's just never, never neglect to talk to the other players as people. The last example from myself, we end with Call of Cthulhu, goes back to um, another Call of Cthulhu playtest I did, this time up in Norwich with a, a few good friends of mine. Um, the final, or what turned out to be the final scene of the, uh, the adventure which, to put it in context, um, it's a 1920s um, King and Yellow game where you've got a fairly large library where bits of Carcosa are starting to manifest or bits of the player starting to manifest in the library and culminates, at least the route that they took through the scenario, culminated with a showdown against the Phantom of Truth stood in front of a bookcase that formed a larger part of the yellow sign that had been weaved throughout the rest of the library. They knew that if they could disrupt the sign they could effectively return home. Um, but between them and the bookcase, there is the Phantom of Truth and one of the librarians who's been arranging this, this whole mess. He starts off um, almost in a bomb villain-esque voice. Oh, well, so what, uh, what might you people have come here to do? Uh, one of the players, I think it was uh, Susan in the game, turned around and said, well, come here to use the books. This is a library, after all. And just generally started back-chatting uh, the poor Phantom getting him more riled up and thinking, yeah, okay, this is an interesting tactic. You're, just, you're pissing off a god. Okay, yeah, this, this, this might lead to a, a nice, horrible doom for you. And then one of them, uh, must have been Elle in the group, turned around to basically said that the librarian, they'd found information in a notebook that he'd left that said that he's, he was, he, it's all his fault. He was engineering trying to get the character to escape from the library. At which point I just, um, almost falling into almost a LARP mode, just started to gaze, as you would, like turn your head to look at, as if there was the NPC next to you. And that slow, ominous, eyes narrowed because the guy's already pissed off manner, that as soon as I'd looked away, uh, Jess on the other side of the table says, he's looked away from me, I immediately run past him, smash over the bookcase. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, I, I, I have just turned my head, and you have just capitalised on a very small thing that I've done. Go you. 
Nice. It's, it's look, looking for those little moments and little bits that you can exploit and then get a, get a really big payoff and reward. So it sounds like they kind of weaponized library use there. <laughs> oh, yeah. She, she ended up doing a flying kick into the bookcase. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, I think the um, having fluffed a lot of the rolls up until that point, uh, making contact with the bookcase and getting a vision of Hasta was the one time she passed a sand check. <laughs> so what's, what's that all about then? Doing the unexpected? Doing the unexpected, but also looking for those moments of opportunity and jumping on them as soon yes. as you see them. N- none of this thinking and waiting around, just act, spontan- um, act spontan- um, spontaneously. That's the word I'm looking for, yes. yes. <laughs> yeah, with spontaneity. And just run for it, go do what, do what you think at the moment and... Cause be damned, or consequence yeah. be damned rather. Yeah, don't sit there for half an hour coming up with a plan. Yeah, and especially when when she pulled it off, there was yeah, there was a good few cheers that went round that table. So. <laughs> cool. So now that we've spent about the last forty five minutes talking about what makes for a good player, what in summary do you think makes for a good player? I think it's harder to to identify specific techniques for the GM. It was kind of because mm. um, the game is more focused on a single GM so the single GM has got a lot to do and there are various techniques that you can prescribe for a GM for a player it's more about general creativity I mean quite a few of the things that we we talked about were very creative ideas that came from the player and encouraging them to to think around what the the the, the plot of the game is what the game is about and and come up with with new Clever ideas. Yeah, it's a very focused kind of creativity. I, it, it involves reincorporation, reincorporating other people's ideas, reincorporating elements of the game, the game fiction. Uh, it, it, a lot of active listening, you know, yeah. listening to what's going on and sort of picking up on things that the, the GM or the other players are doing and sort of thinking, right, you know, how can I, through the mechanism of my uh, character, make this cooler? Hmm. I think having that perspective beyond your character... Yeah, so you're not purely looking at, well, this is my angle, this is what I'm bringing to the game. No, look at everyone else, look at the story itself, look at the, what the GM's bringing to it. And having that, almost that GM-like role in, as yourself as a player, that you are taking in the whole picture rather than just your own little bit. Yeah, I mean, this is one thing I've found, because I think a lot of the people I play with tend to GM quite a lot as well, that I think people who are used to the GM roles are perhaps a bit more confident or a bit more used to sort of that... Yeah, the, the risk of using what for some people is a bit of a dirty word, that sort of metagame aspect of it, mm. uh, that, that you know, stepping outside of your character a bit and looking at it as a game and thinking about, you know, I mean, still you're looking at your, your character as the tool for shaping it, but thinking about how to shape that game and shape the story in interesting ways. I can think of something I've heard some players say, and it's almost the reverse of this, that they'll do something and then, you know, they say it slightly tongue-in-cheek, oh, I think we're breaking the game here. Yeah. What they're saying is we're doing something creative that the GM hadn't expected. We're sorry about that. Yeah, I, I've had I've had players come up to me after convention games apologising for uh, derailing my scenario, and it's sort of no, I I didn't have a scenario. I had a situation. You did something interesting with it. You did the right thing. You have nothing to apologise for. Yeah, rails in a doorwood scenario. <laughs> no. <laughs> but it's not necessarily about having a not having a. A strong scenario and, and mm. so on. You can have a strong scenario, which is, you know, fairly linear, perhaps even. But if the players are creative within that, that's great. Uh, but if, if you just put your head down as a player and just follow what you perceive 
to be the rails of the game and you know you have an interesting idea but you think well no we should be we should be going to the library and looking in the books to find out what the keeper wants us to find out you know screw that go and do the interesting thing yeah absolutely i mean obviously edit your thoughts a bit don't just go off and do something totally random but but again this comes down i think to some degree to confidence as well yeah. and confidence is a very important thing i think for players and for gms i'm not talking about sort of all-encompassing confidence in life i'm just talking about confidence at the table believing that the ideas you're coming up with are worth sharing um having the confidence to speak up when you think things could or should go in a different direction um and you know as you were saying paul with walking out of the game you know confidence to say you know even you know categorically like this isn't working for me when something you know isn't working for you a lot of this, I think, as well, comes down to fairly basic social skills. I've seen this discussion come up a number of times, you know, as to you know, how can I become a better player, um, or how can I become a better GM. And one of my stock answers to that is generally, you know, just, you know, concentrate on the social skills at the table, but communicating clearly with other people, knowing what you want, communicating without listening to other people, uh, you know, incorporating what they have to say as well, and remembering that role playing is a conversation. Yeah, and that it is, it's communication in and out of a game context. You're talking, maybe necessarily talking to other players in character, but maybe you're also talking to other players out of character. Aye, definitely. And from a GM's point of view, um, rather than from a player's point of view, the players that I remember have done the things that we've talked about this evening. They've done creative and by definition kind of unexpected things. They've been helpful to the other players. They've brought the game alive. And most importantly, they've had fun doing it. Yeah. And they've given fun to the other people yeah. at the table. Yeah. And given us anecdotes that, as you said, stick with us for years. Well, that wraps up our discussion of player techniques. Um, well, thank you very much for listening. We hope that it's been useful or at least entertaining or at least you know, hasn't bored you. <laughs> and if you've got any more good ideas of uh, player techniques, then drop us a line and let us know. Yeah, or just turn up and surprise us at the gaming table. Definitely. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can you can show us your funky stuff. So that's about it for tonight. It's good night from me. Cheerio from me. And farewell from me. Hello. Blasphemous Tomes dot com. Mm-hmm.